I believe from what I can gather, and I spoke to I spoke to Graham, my Irish friend, uh, about his time here, and he said he enjoyed it. He had a good time, and from the uh, the feedback that I've had from you guys, it sounds like you enjoyed his preaching as well. And the good news is that he signed up for the 29th of May. Uh, well, I'm away. We were um, we were listening to Graham. We were sitting around a campfire when we started listening to Graham, and that was good. It's great to have technology. We can stream in. Welcome to the streamers this morning. Good to have you as well. And then we pressed pause and did some stuff, and then we fin- started listening to him again. I think it was the was it the Bulls Head. Oh, Sandy's not here. Oh, I was pointing that Bulls Head fire trail, and then I think we finally got the rest of the sermon when we were driving home. In fact, we listened to the whole the whole thing, the whole way along, all the way through. But while you guys were listening to uh, Graham here, uh, this was us. This is where we were sitting, uh, on the Mitter River, uh, enjoying the scenery there. This is a, 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 a storm cell that, if you can see it, in the background there that that came up over the Dartmouth Dam, uh, which is out to the east of where we were sitting, according to our guide, uh, my brother-in-law. And as the night went on, as darkness fell and it got a little darker and darker, lightning would light these this massive uh, cloud up, illuminating it. Uh, it was quite spectacular. It's what replaced Netflix for us over the weekend. And as we sat there and as we watched it, I just couldn't help but think this is just like a visual display of some of the content that we read about in, in Job 38. We sing that song, Who Has Told Every Lightning Bolt Where It Should Go. It was just literally on display. And some of the creative, uh, some of the content of the creative majesty and power that's attributed to to Jesus as we've been reading the opening of our book of Colossians, that creation, that all of creation, from, from the, the old creation, of creation in the cosmos and the news, and then we start to read about the new creation, the church and, and people and all of it, uh, it's ongoing wonders and, and the things that are unseen and seen, and they're all held together in him and through him and for him. Like that cloud was just lighting up, just saying... This is how cool my maker is. This storm cell just reminds me of how nature points to the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. And if he's kind of powerful enough and organized enough to organize that and put that kind of a light show on, then, then he's probably capable of organizing me and, and, and sustaining me in the faith and the life that he has called me to live. That's kind of what nature should do for us. It should tell us about the grandeur and the bigness and the goodness of God. And then if he is running that, then he's probably okay with running us, yeah? That's the point that Paul's pushing across the table to the Colossians. The one who organized and sustains the universe is also the one who reconciled us to God and the one who holds us there. And as Graham shared with you guys last week, it was Paul's desire that the Colossians, and by extension, you and I... Uh, that, that we would have a confidence in this, that, that our faith in that would be a confident faith and that their shape, and, and, and Graham brought up the, the shaping of their faith in about four insights, I think they were, that come from understanding ourselves as being in Christ. We're to understand and to interpret life in relationship to our relationship with Jesus. So probably better stated, his relationship 
to, with us, and whether that takes place in suffering as was spoken about, or whether that takes place in, in how it is that we live out our lives, how it is that we serve each other, serve the, the, the world, how it is where we get our, our, our spiritual power to live out a Christian life from, where that comes from, it's, it's, it's external to us, it's, but it's in us through Christ. And also where the surety of our saving faith comes from the experience, that we experience that assurity, don't we? That we experience the transforming of things where we, where, uh, we once delighted in sin and now that has been replaced with delight in Jesus. It's what we would call here at Freeway, we call that renewed worship priorities. And of this, Paul says this about all of that. He says, this is the riches of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's how that all started last week, Christ in us. And Paul has spent the first chapter and a bit of his letter to the Colossians just celebrating in a way how, the, the, how it is that the faith and the hope and the, and the love that is in their lives comes from the revealed and received truth of the gospel. Now I said them the wrong way around. It's got to be faith, love and hope because hope's the emphasis in Colossians. But how those things are manifesting up in their lives because of the received truth, the revealed truth that they have received and how it's taken hold of their lives. And this is how it's bearing evidence. It has qualified them as saints to share in the inheritance of the firstborn, to be a part of the renewed creation under the headship, under the authority of Jesus This is all theirs now. And how in that same authority of Jesus, they have been delivered out of the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son, where realities like redemption of of reconciliation, of new relationship with God, where realities of forgiveness are in our lives. This is our new standing with God. This is our new position with God. They have replaced our old way of life, our posture towards God of hostility, our position uh, um, under God of condemnation. These things have been replaced in Christ. That's the gospel. The gospel is the news that in and through and for Jesus, God is recreating, restoring the cosmos from chaos that sin has introduced to it. And then within that, a new community of people whose hearts and whose posture is no longer one of opposition to God and opposition to his design for our lives, but one of delight in God, one of transformed joy in the designs that he has for our lives. Or as Paul puts it in verse 7 of uh, this passage, and I don't know if it's going to come up on this slide, but um, abounding in thanksgiving. It's one of the signatures, and we'll talk about it right at the end, that you have actually a genuine faith but in our passage today uh, Paul is going to tackle head-on the concerns uh, that Epaphras has raised with him Epaphras is in prison with him visiting or or, or just enjoying some food and and the hospitality of the Roman Empire there and he's been chatting to Paul about what's going on in Colossae and and he says everything's great uh, faith love and hope but something's something's going on 
You see, despite the simplicity of the gospel and the undeniable kind of grandeur of its transforming presence and its transforming power, it seems that there are those within this community or those who have, who have come into this community from the outside that feel that they can improve what's been heard and received. Or better stated, that they can come and they can, can, they can tame it. They can control it. They can put a leash on it. They can become its master. Like they can start to, to dictate what's going on here. They want to add their own personal preference, their own personal design or their own personal kind of duties to this gospel message that's been heard. They want to take Jesus from the center of it. And what they want to do essentially, whether they admit this or not, is place themselves there with convincing and coercing theories and mystical ideas or rituals and practices that we get to perform, that we get to know, that we can use to pave uh, our kind of piety, our pathway of piety, so that God can then um, you know, applaud us and, and approve us for what we're doing rather than us just delighting in what he's done. Because this is what we do when we are told there is nothing for us to do. This is what we do when we are told we can't save ourselves. This is what we do when we are told that we receive faith. It, it comes to us. It's not something that we go and grab. It's not something that we reap or work or earn. What we tend to do is we tend to wrestle control back and we regain the lordship of our lives. Grace, the motive of the gospel is a hard pill to swallow. Grace, the person of the gospel, is an unsettling person to encounter because grace requires humility. Grace requires dependency to, to, to wash it down, that pill. It requires humility and need and dependency to, to meet the person of Jesus requires humility and dependency and need to relinquish the lordship of our lives, our self-rule, and hand it over to the rule of Jesus, who our faith says is Lord. There has emerged amongst the Colossians some hollow and deceitful uh, philosophies, some cultural traditional uh, environmental pressures, ideas, uh, practices, these kind of things that are asking the question, is Jesus really sufficient? Is faith alone in him alone sufficient? Is what you heard, the message you heard about faith in Christ alone, is that, uh, is that really all there is to know? Is what you received all there is? Is there more out there? Could there be more to do? And, and whether they are on about needing more knowledge and experience of the spiritual world or, of, or some have suggested maybe he's talking about the elements, the elemental aspects of the world or whether they are on about requiring more compliance with ceremony and ritual and traditions. Uh, it's, it's a complicated, complex, ongoing conversation. And Paul throughout, in this chapter, in chapter 2, mentions that there's dietary restrictions in some of this. There's the observation and practice of Jewish holidays. There's aesthetic disciplines. There's, there's angels and visions and these kind of things. They're all part of this conversation. The so-called Colossian heresy uh, is a broad conversation, is a broad investigation. But what is clearly undeniable in all of this 
is that these hollow and deceitful philosophies now now so and paul calls them like because he's not against philosophy in general he's not against wisdom and critical thinking in general he's against this particular way these philosophies are presented and here's why is because they they have diluted and they have diminished the power of the gospel of the sufficiency of christ alone him alone for faith for salvation they, and they have resulted in the, in the losing of connection to Christ. Not holding fast to him is what Paul says later in verse 19. They have, they have made the participants, those people who, who practice these things, uh, the hero rather than Jesus. Like These things well up in people as pride. Look at, how I, look at how spiritual I am. Look at how often I come to church. This kind of business, they, they lead to pride. And Paul says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive with these ideas, these philosophies that don't start, that don't continue and end in Christ. He is saying take responsibility for your faith. Don't just drift. Don't just forget the content of the gospel and allow some other content, some other uh, context to come and coexist with what you've already heard, of what you've been taught. The encouragement, and it's also a warning that Paul is addressing now, is about how uh, we are to preserve, to continue on in in our faith uh, without drift without distraction, without uh, dissatisfaction in Christ Jesus the Lord. You see, how you came to faith is how you continue in faith. It's not get started one way and then find another way to continue on in the faith, which is what we do a lot of. And we, and we do it without thinking. We do it without realizing we're doing it. We do it because we're not thinking We all go, yes, we're saved by grace. And everyone agrees on that. Yes, that's how we got started. It's the kindness of God towards sinners. Read Romans, Romans 2, Romans 5, Romans 6. Romans is big on it. It's the love of God towards glory thieves, people who who would diminish God and exalt self. It's the love of God towards design thieves, design destroyers, people who would say, uh, we know how we should express ourselves and we know how we should treat each other and how we should treat the world that we live in. And God has no say in that. It's the patience of God towards people who think God is irrelevant. Grace is how we all got started. God in grace saves sinners. But then these grace-delivered people instantly or or very shortly create ways of demonstrating how they deserve ongoing grace like let me show you why i deserve your grace to continue in my life we develop programs about behavior modification and we develop programs about spiritual growth and how to be a great christian husband or a pet owner or a worker or or how how to be a great christian single person And if we're not careful, rather than these things pointing us back to Jesus, and he's the hero of these programs and these stories, they replace him. They become the means through which we relate to God, seek approval, human traditions and philosophies. Listen, you want to be a good spouse? 
Sure, do that. Read, read Tim Keller's book, uh, Meaning of Marriage. Do an alpha retreat. Absolutely. You want to know how to, how to, how to live as, as a single person, as a, as a Christian single? Then Sam, Sam Elbury's got this great book out now that's getting great reviews, The Seven Myths of Singleness. You know, read that. You want to be a good neighbor? Sure. You know, join a local community group, SES, Surf Life Saving, become a chaplain. Uh, Kids Hope. You want to be a good Christian? Do that too. Sure, join a church. Serve there. Like you should join a church. You can't be a healthy Christian and not come to church. That's an oxymoron. But here's the point. Don't do any of that in the absence of continuing to be shaped by Christ. Those, none of those things replace or substitute Jesus. Of continuing to nurture the hope, the content of the gospel that you heard which God revealed as in you, the hope of glory in you. Grace upon grace, uh, John calls it in, as he opens his gospel. We've seen it. We've encountered it. It's ours. Because the second you move away from, uh, from being under, from, uh, from understanding and receiving how in Christ God loved you, how in Christ God served you, how in Christ God died for you how in Christ God continues to move towards you walk beside you transform you how in Christ he has forgiven you for everything you ever did everything you're doing right now that thought like man I hope he finishes by 11 o'clock that's sin Um, and everything that you're gonna do how he equips you for everything you need to do the minute we do that you begin again to seek to do life under your own lordship, your own power, your own control. And we are simply not designed for that. And it crushes us. And it blows us up. We do it poorly. It's why we start to question our faith. It's why we start to drift. It's why we start to get dissatisfied with our faith. Once you've begun to drift from Jesus, that leads to getting distracted from Jesus which leads to being dissatisfied in Jesus, which leads to being taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophies and human traditions. Uh, Sadly, on Friday I caught up with someone, I say sadly because of some of what we discussed, it was great to catch up with this person, I haven't seen him for a while, so that was really cool. But they no longer saw any point to church, to being shaped by Jesus, being part of God's family. And as I listened to how they drifted away, it was all based on being dissatisfied and distracted. They were let down by someone. This, this certain thing happened, and, and, and it was a tough thing. Like It wasn't no trivial thing. This person did something that offended them, that disappointed, and they should have been. It was discouraging. None of what this person described was trivial. But as they talked, never once in the narrative was Jesus mentioned. He was absent from their experience, at least the retelling of it. And I couldn't help but wonder, and I did this later as I, re- as I was replaying the conversation. I wished I'd picked it up when I was with them. How different could this story have been had Jesus remained at the center of everything that was going on? 
if Christ Jesus, the Lord, was actually the Lord in all that was going on. And as Graham described last week, you know, how different when suffering is um, understood in the context of Christ's suffering. How, how different when loneliness is understood in the context of Christ's loneliness. How different are we towards forgiveness when we understand forgiveness in the context of our forgiveness in Christ? Because in Christ, we have a God that not only holds the cosmos together, but knows what it is to be human and holds us together. Paul is saying to the Colossians from start to finish that in Christ Jesus the Lord we are to walk and do all things to understand our lives and that's the opening line of our passage in verse 6 like we've started in the middle now we're rolling back to the top it's a very unique but precise description of of the one that their, their faith is in, the, the one that Paul has been describing so far in this letter in pretty amazing terms. We don't get to describe Jesus in our terms. He has already described himself. You don't get uh, to go say things like, oh, the Jesus that I worship, and then insert your own particular you know, social agenda, sexual orientation, political ideology, philosophy, learning, whatever. Now, Jesus has already defined who he is. The faith they have, the faith they have received, is in a real and historic person, Jesus, the man from Nazareth, who lived a perfect life according to the law, and then was crucified by Pontius Pilate. That's the historic person of Jesus. Now, us Baptists, we need creeds. We need historic facts in our faith. That's a historic fact. And who proved himself to be the Messiah, the Christ. That's the next thing here. Uh, Peter declares this in Mark 8 and, and, and Matthew 16. You are the Christ, the Messiah. That's, this is what the revelation that's come to him. God's promised figure from the Old Testament who, who radically and a little unexpectedly let people know that the real issue that needed rescuing, the real issue that needed restoring, uh, the real problem that sin had created was not in politics and programs and governments, but in people's hearts. And he went about restoring them and transforming them and giving them something greater than sin to desire, giving them something uh, more beautiful than the chaos to be enslaved to. He gave them himself. He said things like, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. You don't need no Jewish holiday. He said things like, I am the way the truth, the life. These were the things he claimed. But most confronting was his claim to be Lord, to be God. So you, when you receive this Jesus, you don't add this kind of a Jesus to a collection of ideas, of life options. You bow your knee to this Jesus as the rightful ruler and carer of your soul. That's who your faith is in. If you have received the gospel that Paul and Epaphras and the New Testament writers 
are pushing across the table to us. Paul says, therefore, because you know Jesus this way, because you know Jesus a certain way, continue to walk in that way, in in him, which is Paul's shorthand now for Christ Jesus the Lord. In him, in that understanding of Jesus, faith is achieved. In him, that understanding of Jesus, faith is received. In him, faith is sustained. It It is walked out and lived out in this life. That identity statement, in him, is what defines the Christian. And it's far too expansive to try and describe this morning. It's mainly because John stole all my time. But basically, we get some idea, some insight into it in verse 9, is describing identity. Just as the fullness of the deity uh, dwells bodily in Jesus, and here's what we should note about that. Paul does not say here that Christ became filled with deity God's nature or anything like that, but rather it's inherent. There has never been a time when Jesus was not divine, divinely characterized. It's not something that that was introduced to him at some point, like his baptism or, or anything like that. And Paul does not say that the fullness of God dwells in Christ, says that while Jesus is around, God is not around. But very cleverly, Paul says divinity dwells in Christ. This is a statement of equality with God. This is what you get in Jesus. And rather incredibly, Paul says in verse 9, that we have been filled in him. So we now get something that isn't inherent to us, something we never had before. In Christ, now we're receiving something The qualities of Jesus now direct and define the Christian approach and experience and understanding of life. And just as the fullness of deity positions Jesus in a relationship with God, so being in Christ now also positions us in in, in a new relationship with God. Now we've received a new relationship with God. That's what it means to be in Christ. It's not the same kind of nature that uh, the Trinity shares, but, but, it, but it brings us into this same standing. It's why we're, we're told we inherit all that Jesus in, inherits, all that is his is ours. It's a description of the new creation. We are in Christ, our new standing before God. So we don't stand before God anymore with our CV or our strength, but we stand in his grace. His grace in our lives. And in him, that little phrase in him appears six times in our passage, along with a couple of companion descriptions where we're with him. That, that turns up twice. And Paul constantly describes how, different, how the different questions and the different aspects of, of the Christian faith find their answer in remembering the known facts about Jesus and about his in himness that we have. And in verse 7, Paul gives four practical points of how we can continue to keep walking in him. And remember, they're not programs because they they need to point us back to Jesus. So that we don't drift, that we don't get distracted and end up being dissatisfied and taken captive with the latest cultural idea. All the resources that are needed to combat drift, distraction and dissatisfaction, we have in Christ. Firstly, Paul says, using a botanical metaphor, that we need to remain uh, rooted in him. And then because Paul never took modern English, he, he, he switches his metaphor and he uses a building 
metaphor, building image. And he says you need to be built up in him. And the image of being rooted is one uh, of, of what has established our faith. Paul uses this image in what's called the perfect tense. Uh, it's a completed work, okay? But it has ongoing and continuing action. So what, is a sta- so what has established your faith was complete. It didn't need anything else added to it. It didn't need to know about some secret mystery. It didn't need to know what the angels were doing. Everything that we've learned about Jesus is complete story. Nothing needs to be added. The gospel message that took hold of your heart is a permanent, unchangeable source of growth. What established you will not change. Jesus is constant and complete. That's, that's what it is to be in him. That's the source of faith. Just as a tree grows out of a particular root system, does not change its nature. If an apple tree is germinated, then you're going to get apples from that tree. So if you receive Jesus as this promised Messiah and Lord, then Jesus is what you get as you, what you begin to look like and stay submitted to. The image of, of, being, of being built up in him and indeed the next two images that Paul uses of being uh, strengthened or established as the ESV has or overflowing or abounding as the ESV has uh, in thankfulness are, are written in the present tense, not the perfect. But that still means that there is continuous development going on. And what this is painting is a picture that we are all, even though you've come to Christ and you are in Christ, and that is a complete and finished work, you, though, are still a work in progress. There's more to do in you. The coming to faith in Jesus is not an event. It's an ongoing life transformation. Like, Jesus doesn't need any more mods. We do. That's what's going on. Whether it is the source of our faith or the construction of it, Paul is saying it takes place in being filled with Christ. It means this. It means regular reflection on the aspects of his character. How does his justice shape us? Reflections on his nature. How does his compassion shape us? Reflections on his activity. Here we go. How does the prayer life and worship and love of God that Jesus exercised shape us? How do his promises shape us? How does the claim to give us life in the full, to forgive sins and to never leave or forsake us shape our faith? To be rooted and built up means to encounter and know Jesus in life changing ways, in transformational ways that bring, uh, that bring to life a new system of, of, of living that, that, that nourishes uh, all the ongoing growth and development that comes out of that, which is why uh, Paul moves to his next image, um, because all of this rootedness, all of this building up needs information. It needs presuppositions, which we've already sort of begun to discuss, but Paul makes sure that we know where to find them. He says, uh, he says to you, you find the content of your faith 
in what you were established in, what you were taught in, like the, the, the gospel message. Faith is not uh, an exercise of imagination, although our imaginations have to be activated as we, as we think about Christ, as we practice his presence in our lives. We conjure up thoughts. We, we react to feelings, if you like. But these things are based in facts. What fuels the imagination are the facts of the gospel. Like I said, you don't get to make up who Jesus is and what he's done. This is what prevents our faith from becoming a free-for-all. The gospel has truths, and those truths come to us in the scriptures. So, take-home point, read your Bibles. Like, I don't know who it is you think you're worshipping if you never open your Bible. Like, I don't know who it is you think you're being shaped by if you never open your Bible. If you never bother to read about what God has given us about who Jesus is, you're worshipping an idol of your own construction. You are following a God of your own construction. And that's going to crush you. And that's going to lead to drift. And it's going to lead to distraction. And it's going to lead to dissatisfaction. Read your Bible. That is where you encounter the nature, the character, the activity, and the promises of Jesus. And now finally, Paul uses another metaphor of what it means to be shaped by Jesus, to continue to walk in him. And it's one of a river, and, and the NIV has overflowing, the ESV has abounding. I actually like overflowing better. Overflowing because of the imagery of a river bursting its banks, overflowing in thanksgiving. Here is how, this is like, here's how you know if you've actually met Jesus, if, he, if you are in him and he is in you, if you've been rooted in him and built up in him, he makes you irreducibly happy. Or better stated, he fills you with joy. There's a gratitude. So, so that if, if hard things happen, if, if, if terrible things happen, your happiness can go, but your joy stays this is the acid test of real faith does your understanding of jesus and what he has done in your life actually fill you with thanksgiving and my old senior pastor graham smith used to say it was like some people have been baptized in lemon juice <laughs> gratitude is what you have when you understand grace religion philosophies human traditions rely on works on what you must do Christianity is established and rooted and built up in grace. What has been done, what Christ has been done and how he has brought that into your life. The wonder of Jesus, the delight of Jesus is that everything he has done for us, gives to us, continues to do for us is an outpouring of grace. We didn't deserve it. We couldn't work for it. Nothing of ourselves or anything in us you know, compelled him to do that. It's undeserved favor and blessing. And that is extraordinarily good news because it doesn't, you know, depend on us. So that when we do drift a little, when we, when we do um, get distracted a little, it does not change Jesus' approach to us. It's still grace. His commitment to us never changes. It's full. It's complete. The true and fundamental quality of real faith is delight in Jesus and joy 
in knowing him more and more. Do you, do you know Jesus like this? I think that's what was wrong with my friend. Their circumstances, their environment became more determinative in their life than the delight of knowing Jesus. So they drifted, they got distracted, and now they're utterly dissatisfied. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Colossians. We thank you for your word to us. Uh, I don't know if anyone's been watching the Louis Giglio uh, DV, uh, videos, but this is your word, your breath, your revelation. We are literally reading what you want us to know about who your son is and how he is uh, in our lives. This morning, as we think about this, as we go away into our small groups and we talk this over more and more, uh, would you just encourage us with the knowledge that you have given us all we need to live in this world well uh, in accordance with your design in Christ. Would this be our strength? Would this be a song uh, for our lives? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.